RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the uh, all-wonderful new TikTok. As I've mentioned in the past, go ahead and check out for all you personal injury attorneys out there, Bravo Delta Legal Services. They get all of our medical records for us. So let's get right into the show today. As kind of a lot going on in the news, uh, we have some things going on uh, in Copland, if you will, and we have some things going on in Sportsland. And one thing before we get started with the show today, I'd like to bring up and mention and recognize on this day, June 29th, 2010, so 10 years ago, Officers Curtis and Colcab with the Tampa Police Department were shot to death on duty. And I would say that that night and uh, early morning hours is something that still somewhat haunts me to this day, if you will. Uh, as you all listen, uh, know, I spent six years in law enforcement, three of which were at the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And on that night in 2010, it was while I was working Progress Village in Progress Village uh, area. Uh, encompasses US 41, which is also known as 50th Street. And I had the county area. And those two officers were obviously, since they worked for the city of Tampa in the city area, uh, that shooting took place uh, a mile or two north of my assigned area and an area that I spent a lot of time uh, on, uh, on US 41 or 50th Street. And I just remember hearing that news that night as it came through uh, the radio for us and then uh, the ensuing manhunt afterwards and uh, I think it was a day or two later we ended up there's some railroad tracks that parallel 50th street in that area and I just remember getting a call and we must have had 10 deputies scouring the railroad tracks uh, only to find out that we had uh, missed the shooter by about five minutes Uh, so as I mentioned 10 years ago today June 29th we recognize and remember officers uh, Curtis and Colcab of the Tampa Police Department. That said, uh, let's let's stay on uh, the police news, if you will, and let's talk a little bit about the incident in Minnesota and uh, Minneapolis. Uh, more, more. We'll we'll talk about Minneapolis and the incident that happened there uh, with George Floyd. One of the things I was reading recently about it is that the four officers that were involved, uh, the four that were, for lack of a better term, just standing around, there's there's some talk and some thought that they may get their jobs back. And, uh, you know, they've been charged with aiding and abetting in second degree murder. That's a very serious charge. Uh, we have a, a similar charge in Florida that you can be charged for aiding and abetting uh, any felony or misdemeanor. So there is some parallels from that aspect. But very interesting to see and, and to think that, hey, these officers could potentially get their jobs back. So let's look into that a little bit and let's look into the reasonings why and maybe look into why, from a legal perspective, a knee-jerk reaction or or a decision from a legal perspective could be a knee-jerk decision on the legal side, but be, in real life, the complete correct action to take. And what this all hinges on is something called due process. And it's a fancy legal term. I'm going to read the actual dictionary definition for you because due process doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot. But 
It is the fair treatment through the normal judicial system, especially as a citizen's entitlement. That is the dictionary definition of it. And basically, that same concept carries through to a lot of labor and employment law, especially other areas outside of Florida that have unions and very powerful unions. Florida, for the most part, is not unionized. Uh, I know Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has no union. Uh, I believe Tampa Police Department uses the Police Benevolent Association, but I don't think that they are able to carry a lot of weight when it comes to hirings and firings, uh, just in terms of Florida being what's known as a right-to-work state. So, what does all that mean, though? And when we look at it from the legal perspective, what it means is essentially you have to have all your ducks in a row. When you make a decision to fire somebody, you have to be sure that you have all the evidence against them and that you're making the right decision, legally speaking. Okay. And I know that's a different concept because we can all look at the video and we can all go, hey, that was wrong. From a moral perspective, from a human perspective, that was wrong. And sometimes, the legal perspective and the real life human perspective are two different things. And it's one thing that as I was talking to different people about when this incident first happened, it was, Hey, a lot of these things happened as quickly as they possibly could, right? Things didn't happen immediately. So when the officer was charged, most likely because of the severity of the charge, they had to have a grand jury. Well, that doesn't happen with a snap of a fingers. There's a little bit of process that goes into that. They have to investigate it. They have to put the evidence together. They have to get the grand jury put together. And oh, by the way, all of this is happening in a time where a lot of things are shut down. Uh, I know in Florida, a lot of the, the jury trials are still shut down. So you don't have that pool to choose from immediately. So things do take time. And I know in a real life perspective, we want these things to happen immediately. So that's that's where these officers, the four officers who essentially stood around and did nothing, uh, that's where they could potentially get their jobs back. Now, the legal side of it, their criminal charges, completely different story, okay? Completely separate processes on the criminal charges. If they don't plead guilty or plead no contest, they'll have a jury trial and they'll have a, a jury of their peers. It'll either be six or 12 people, depending on the severity of the charge. And they will determine whether they were guilty or not guilty. On the employment perspective, it's going to be a completely different analysis. And they can appeal the decision by the department to fire them. And how that works is it then goes to a process called arbitration. And arbitration, very similar to the court process, very similar to the trial process, except for you have one person. And how it works there is they have a pool and a pool of seven people, and each side gets to knock off names in that pool until they can agree on one particular name. So very similar to jury selection. As we do jury selection, we kind of knock off people down the line until we get to a group of seven, okay, six plus one alternate, uh, or 13 or 14, depending uh, on the severity of the charge and depending on the amount of alternates the judge wants uh, when you're talking about a very serious criminal charge, okay? But same process as we're talking about arbitration, there's going to be a pool and there's going to be a selection. Now, some of the data does show us uh, those arbitrators bat about 500, 50-50, okay? 50% of the time, they find for the employer, 50% of the time, they find for the union. And you know, if you read some of the initial, the initial statistics on it, it's all about the 
police and the police unions and the 50-50 split. But actually, if you look at it amongst all professions, it's generally a 50-50 split. Now, look, we're still always dealing with the human element when we're dealing with these things. And the reality is if you vote too much on one side or the other side, the chances of you becoming part of that selection process become slimmer and slimmer. And if you're getting paid to be part of that selection process and and be an arbitrator for these cases, you're most likely to be 50-50. Now, that said, they generally get the hardest cases because the easier cases tend to resolve themselves. So that is why we might see those four officers in Minneapolis actually get their jobs back. Now, that all would come with criminal charges hanging over their heads. So not really sure how Minnesota would deal with that or the Minneapolis Police Department would deal with that. Now, you know, as we know, this may become a mute point because the city council in Minneapolis has actually voted to disband the police department. Uh, from what I understand, that's going to be a, a long process and it's not something that's going to happen overnight, uh, but they have to change and amend the city charter. So a lot of pieces, a lot of moving pieces to this puzzle. And, you know, we'll see and we'll try to follow this thing as the podcast moves along. Switching gears here a little bit. We'll keep it all legal today, but we are going to talk a little bit about sports. Big news uh, in terms of some California teams, UCLA, and most recently, as of this morning, Cal, uh, Under Armour is terminating some of their partnership agreements. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, UCLA and Under Armour have a huge $280 million partnership, and Under Armour is looking to terminate that partnership. And what that really means, what does that mean from a legal perspective? They are looking at the contract that they have with UCLA, and something this large would quite certainly be in writing. It would actually, you'd have uh, something called the statute of frauds, and that has a dollar minimum that uh, if you cross, or maximum rather, if you cross that maximum and it's uh, it's about $500 or so, then you have to have a contract in writing. Otherwise, your agreement is essentially void, meaning that it doesn't exist. So this would quite clearly be in writing, and most likely when you're talking about two entities of this magnitude, a UCLA and an Under Armour, this went under huge, intense, scrutinized negotiations back and forth down to the smallest letter of the contract. Uh, but there are, there is a piece that Under Armour is hanging their hat on, and it is that if Under Armour is paying for marketing benefits that they have not received over an extended period of time, they can terminate the contract. Now, sounds pretty clear on its face. Hey, it's been an extended period of time and we're going to terminate. Well, there's some questions that come up. All right. Number one, we don't have the whole contract and no media that I found on it has the whole contract. And highly likely speaking, neither of these two entities are going to release the contract until we get into actual litigation. And when someone files a complaint, they will most likely attach the contract as an exhibit. And maybe we can look at the contract as a whole. But that's the point is you have to take the contract as a whole. And no matter what you do to try to make a contract as clear as possible, there are always pieces that come up. There's, there is really no such thing as a true ironclad contract. This episode of the Lawfather podcast is presented by Golden Pair Funding. My attorney friends, if your clients are looking for pre-settlement or surgical funding, give Golden Pair Funding a call today. They will provide easy underwriting, speedy approvals, electronic signing, competitive rates, and flexibility at settlement when necessary. See, 
Their focus is to make the funding process pain-free and expedient for you and your clients, reducing your administrative burden while providing ample time for you to fight the insurance companies and receive top dollar for your clients. And I can tell you this about Golden Pair. Uh, I recently, over the past week, had a, a client who he, he needed rent money. He hasn't been able to work since his crash, and he was about two days away from being evicted from his landlord. And this was, uh, I believe it was Friday afternoon. It was a Friday afternoon, uh, about 3, 4 o'clock, and I get a call from the client, and you know, we give the clients uh, options, and he ended up calling Golden Pair. And by 4.30 that day, I had uh, signed off on the attorney side of what I needed to sign off on with Golden Pair, and the client had his money before five o'clock that day. So if you have a client that needs uh, pre-settlement funding, by all means, give Golden Pair funding a call. Uh, and if you are looking to work with the industry leader in pre-settlement funding, call Golden Pair Funding today at 813-856-2099. Tell them the law father sent you. The other piece to it is, what does an extended period of time mean? And it doesn't seem to be very well defined because if it was, I am pretty sure since Under Armour is the one who put out that language in the contract, they would be hanging their hat on it. So for example, uh, and if, if the contract defined extended period of time as 30 days or more, you could say, okay, well, everything's been shut down for 30 days or more. That fits the bill, right? Now, could there be other pieces in that contract that say you can't terminate because of uh, what's called a force majeure? And a lot of times things that fall into that war, civil unrest, pandemics, uh, weather issues. Okay. And by weather issues, I mean severe weather issues. Uh, so uh, in, in that area, I, I'm not 100% sure if Minneapolis ever has any ultra severe weather, but maybe tornadoes out there, I would imagine out there, they have no hurricanes like we have in Florida. So, um, but think about for those of us in Florida, the complete devastation that a hurricane can have, and how that could be uh, something that that really could shut down marketing efforts for a school and for uh, a marketer. So, big huge news there, and and also uh, as of this morning, they are there is talks that they're going to pull out of the Cal deal as well. So, from a legal perspective. It, you know, a lot more to tell from that and a lot more to come from that. And I guess maybe it raises the bigger question, is Under Armour in some trouble from a business perspective? Has Under Armour maybe taken a substantial hit uh, in terms of the pandemic? So $280 million, I believe that was a 15-year contract that they had with UCLA. So spread that $280 million out over 15 years. Still a huge, substantial sum of money. I believe it was the largest in school history. So that is where Under Armour is and the colleges. More to come on that, and we'll keep a close eye on that as well. Now, one thing that we talked about last time on the last podcast was, I believe it was in St. Pete, there was a motorcyclist who was surrounded by protesters. And we talked about what you can do to defend yourself and what's legally allowed in Florida. Well, this seems to be an issue that, is going to keep popping up. And it, it really creates an interesting legal analysis, if you will. And when you read the paper and you read the news, uh, you see quotes from different sides and, and you get a spin on what's happening. And look, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what's happening. All I can do is take, what, take the snippets that I read 
and apply a legal analysis to it. And really, essentially, when you're working with a client, that's what you're doing. You're taking snippets, although these snippets are coming from a client, and you're trying to match up these snippets with a legal analysis. And maybe you have some witness statements, and witness statements, by and large, are usually not all that great. Uh, witness statements are generally pretty unreliable when, when you look at it from a perspective of needing to actually use it in real life. Uh, it sounds good. The person saw it, and they're telling you what they saw. However, from years in law enforcement and from years as an attorney, I can tell you those witness statements are not always what you expect them to be. It's not always like you see in the movies. So you're taking all of these snippets and you're coming up with a legal analysis. You're saying, okay, this is what the law says. This is what the case law says. And this is how we think a judge, a jury, and anybody else may rule on this particular piece. So let's bring it to, I think it was over the weekend that there were some protests in Hyde Park. Now, uh, that would be Hyde Park in Tampa, Florida, not Hyde Park in New York. Okay, we we have our own Hyde Park area, and it's uh, it's an area that tends to have, um, say, more high end type restaurants. Um, they have some clothing stores. Just kind of setting the scene for those of you who aren't familiar with the area. It is a heavily pedestrian traveled area. It's really kind of set up so you park in one spot and you can walk. They call it Hyde Park Village, so you can just kind of park and walk through all of this. There's probably six or seven restaurants maybe and you know probably six or seven kind of boutique style retail stores as well. So that's kind of the, the setup of it. Well, there was some some protests that occurred there and by all accounts they were called peaceful protests, but the peaceful protesters were also blocking the road. So it starts to bring up a question of what is a peaceful protest? Does a peaceful protest also include blocking a roadway? Okay. By blocking a roadway, you're actually violating the state statute. So are you still being peaceful? And you know, we can bring this full circle and go, okay, well, this is a first amendment issue because, Hey, as U.S. citizens, we have the right to peacefully assemble. We have the right to free speech. Okay? Yes. However, there are limitations on that. And you have to be doing things legally. Free speech, uh, there's actually you know, vulgarities. If, if you offend somebody with vulgarities, there's actually provisions in state statutes that you could actually be arrested for that. Okay? Yes, it's free speech. You can say whatever you want, but you can't just say truly anything you want. Okay. So kind of keep that in mind as we look at this. Yes, we have a first amendment issue or we have a first amendment right to peacefully assemble. We have a right to free speech. We have a right to all of these things and it's great. And, and it's how things are changing. It's how we're seeing change enacted. I mean, min, min, uh, excuse me, Mississippi uh, just recently voted to change their state flag. And the, I'll tell you what, the, the, legislature did it, I, I would imagine, in record time for any state government to accomplish absolutely anything. I mean, this story popped up maybe a week and a half ago, and as of this morning on today's podcast, they have agreed to change the the Mississippi state flag, and 
you know, that came from a lot of pressure from the two state universities that are there, uh, their football programs. And, and I would imagine some of this may even come from those football coaches saying, hey, we keep losing big time recruits because of this flag. And I know one of them, I think it was Mississippi, had a player who actually transferred out because of the Mississippi flag. So um, kind of big changes there. And we are seeing that, that protesting is making a change. But from the legal perspective, you get on a roadway, you're blocking a roadway, someone is trying to drive by. And look, we've all at this point seen pictures of what happens as someone's trying to drive down a street and they have the unfortunate luck of coming across protesters. And I I think most of us could possibly put ourselves in the shoes of the driver for a moment. I had no idea that there was any protest going on in Hyde Park. I've been to Hyde Park every once in a while. I'll drive over there and and go to some of the stores there. And I could tell you it as easily could have been me driving down that street. And actually it was down a main street that runs east to west from from, uh, the Gulf or from the Bay, Tampa Bay to uh, what's called Hillsborough Bay. So across the whole east and west of the little peninsula that the city of Tampa sits on, this street runs through. And protesters are in the middle of it. And so you have these cars coming by and you're driving a car and to take it back on the law enforcement side for a moment, one of the worst places you can be when things are going on, when there's a crowd around, when there is somebody outside of a car is inside the car. Being in the driver's seat is a really, really bad position to be in. Really tough to get out of uh, as a deputy, really tough to get to your weapon. Okay, if someone were to come up and start shooting at you, it's really difficult to reach to. Now, think about that as a private citizen. Uh, Most private citizens don't carry guns right on their hip exposed like law enforcement do, mostly because it's illegal in Florida to open carry uh, such as that. But be it as it may, it's it's really a position of disadvantage. So you're driving down the street, a group of protesters come out, and they're blocking the street, and you have nowhere to go. And we've seen kind of bad things happen, people kicking cars, breaking windows, things like that. So it's almost, from what I understand from the the media coverage of it, that's what we had here in Hyde Park. We had protesters in the middle of a street and somebody driving down and the guy driving the sides, hey, I'm not stopping, or maybe he stopped and continued on. And I don't know what speed he was going. I don't know if he was trying to inch his way through and people wouldn't move out of the way. I don't know if he was doing 10, 20 miles an hour. My guess is probably not the 10, 20 miles an hour scenario because one of the protesters jumped on the hood, starts banging on the guy's windshield, breaks his windshield. Now, in that scenario, we come right back to what we talked about last time with the motorcycle is Stand your ground. In Florida, you have a right per state statute to stand your ground and defend yourself. Now, he's lawfully allowed to be there. He's on a public street. He's in his car and he's driving. Okay. I would say that's the definition of legally being allowed somewhere. Okay. Now, he doesn't have any duty to retreat. So he could theoretically stop his car, take action to defend himself, and then drive away. Okay. Now, look, we talk about hypothetical scenarios, so I'm not saying somebody should go and do it just like that. But legally speaking, that would work. He's actually actively trying to leave the bad situation. So he's actually trying to remove himself from it. 
Now, long story short, the protester gets charged with it. And from the legal perspective, seems to be the right call because these situations, look, you're, you're a single individual amongst a group of people. Things can go bad quickly. Okay. So look, if you want to protest, go on protest. I have no problem with that. Just, you know, let's, let's maybe be smart about it and let's not make these legal issues. Now they're good for talking about, they're good for breaking down on the podcast, but you know, let's all come together and figure out the right, right way to get the message out there. Okay. So that said, now I, I that said, I, I do understand why the driver was not charged and why the person who jumped on the hood of the car was charged. Uh, probably wouldn't see any charges if it was just relegated to people being in the roadway. I think the jumping on the car changes, changes the dynamics of it. Okay. And puts that driver in greater fear and allowing him to take essentially whatever actions necessary that he needs to, to protect himself. So that said, that is today's podcast. Uh, We covered a lot today. We covered why the Minneapolis officers, the four officers standing around could potentially get their jobs back. All comes down to due process. So keep that in mind. Uh, We talked about breach of contracts and, you know, creating what, what I call a litigatable issue. So if you have a contract, just know that, hey, you may potentially have a litigatable issue. You may not be as tied to that contract as you think. And lastly, for the protesters out there, please, please do it safely. Let's not have anyone get hurt. Let's not have anyone uh, with charges that are, are unnecessary for them to have and carry with them in the rest of their life. Um, Titus O'Neill, I know, had a love walk over this past week. So look at that as a way of doing things uh, and kind of going from there. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, please remember the two Tampa police officers today, uh, officers Curtis and Colcab, uh, who lost their lives in the line of duty 10 years ago today. As always, 855-LAWFATHER. If you have a question for the show, please email me, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. That is the email address for the show. Social media, just search at the lawfather. You'll find me. And that is the show for today. Lawfather out. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles quick fix on Radio Influence. You seen how people have been affected with this COVID, uh, I don't see any way it could possibly happen, especially football. The numbers in football, there's just too many people, there's too many people involved. It's not only the football players on the field, it's their wives, it's their children, it's their unborn children, it's their grandparents, it's the coaches that are usually older. Um, we have to think about everybody. And we have to think about if it's even important enough for us to be talking about. And with training camp, listen to me closely, less than four weeks away. And especially us here in Tampa, okay, you know, we go back three months ago, we're talking about how New York, we don't want anybody from New York here because people from New York are affected. And well, I got some news for everybody. We're sitting in the midst of the fire right here. It's not hotter anywhere in the United States than it is right here in Tampa because people are getting it everywhere, all around us, all the time. Whether they're dying or not, that's that's one thing, but they're getting it. It's definitely around me everywhere. So training camp being four weeks away, the first preseason game being six weeks away, there's anybody out there, put your hands up if you're confident that this is going to happen four weeks from now in in Tampa, Florida. 
In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. 